Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 101 of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the Plague Mayor Gottlieb. Uh, I guess we had a couple standard Grand Prix last weekend. You participated, and the GP Plague caught up to you. It did. I've, I've been so good at dodging the GP Plague lately. I can't remember the last time I returned home from an event sick, but I did a lot of traveling, and I, I stayed in the Northeast for a few days after the GP hung out with friends, really spent way too much time not getting proper rest and exercise and eating pretty poorly. So all those things have now caught up with me and I have returned to the podcast as the Plague Mare, but obviously the game must go on. We're not going to be deterred by such measly things as sickness. We're coming off a guest week here on the game podcast, which people really seem to enjoy a lot, especially, uh, you know, not to downplay Joe's episode, which I also think was great, but people loved hearing from Javier, I think. And I'm really happy we got the chance to do that episode. Javier is, yeah, he's, he's incredible. He is exactly the type of person who should be the face of magic and our episode with him is just one of my favorite episodes of all time. That's cool. I say that all the time, by the way. I, I call a lot of episodes my favorite episodes. You rarely say that. So I, I think it means even more coming from you. And it's also one of my favorite episodes. I really appreciated the chance to talk with him. Just a very composed, put together competitor. Like you can you can tell his approaches to competition in general, not just in magic. His, his approaches to life and competition are spot on. And uh, I, I think probably my co-host over at Head Games, Jonathan Carter, would be super proud of his approach to competition and the way he views things. Yeah. I So the greatness episode, I think that was 67 was the last one where I'm like, this this is awesome. Right. right. And that that's the pinned episode on SoundCloud. I'm going to have to update the pin, I think. Oh, exciting news. A new pinned episode. Yeah. So big, big game, big game. Yeah. Go listen to that Javier episode if you have not already. We're, we're how far out from GRN release? Like three weeks now? Uh, it's three or four. I, I would have to check, but it, it, it's been a little while now. We've, we've done some GRN stuff. There's been a bunch of online PTQs and a, a down week kind of with nothing, nothing going on. So we're into the format quite a bit now. Yeah, and uh, two Grand Prix happened last weekend, one in the Northeast, as you mentioned, in New Jersey. Was it actually in New Jersey? It, it was in New Jersey. I don't remember if it was billed as Grand Prix New York. It wasn't this time, right? No, it was it was New Jersey. Okay, well, this is the it was in the same location that has previously been billed as GP New York. So right. at least they're getting closer to uh, some honesty in the naming conventions, but it was still in Secaucus, New Jersey. Okay, and the other one was in Lil. I should look and see how big these tournaments were, actually, because I haven't actually done that. I think GP New Jersey was floating right around 1,200 entries, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure of the numbers over in Lille. Man, 1,200 is kind of small. I'm I'm a little disappointed by that because it seems like people are really liking GRN and Standard and everything. So 
I would yeah, expect I'm not those sure. to be a little higher. I'm not sure what's going on with those Northeast numbers. I mean, you know, looking back at like the Chain Whirler format, and there was that Providence GP, which had some really, really low attendance numbers. And there were some issues with that format, to be sure. But typically, Northeast GPs are, and especially in constructed formats, they're usually home runs. I mean, I've been playing them for years now, and they're always very well attended. Uh, you know, similar events in the same venue. Certainly, we're floating closer to like 1,800 participants. And that's even further on into a format. And this is this is really the first big shot we've had at GRN, which is kind of crazy in and of itself. I don't know that we yeah. should be waiting this long to play standard tournaments. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think so either. I mean, if there were a week one GP, I almost certainly would have been there. But now it's kind of at the point where the Pro Tour is coming up and I have to handle a bunch of things and everything. I just had like a month of not doing anything, basically, which kind of sucked. I mean, obviously, I could have gone to New Jersey, but that's coast to coast and yeah, kind of kind of brutal. You know, I mean, you know, I, I do know I just did it and I've returned ill. So, yes, it can be fairly brutal. But yeah, I, I would like to see a little bit more action early on in the format, especially with a format as interesting as this. I mean, you can support from a business standpoint, our sponsor Star City's decision to move towards modern with a, a lot of the focus of their tournament series. And I understand why. Modern is the most popular magic format. We keep saying it here, no matter how much you may not like it, your distaste of it is not going to change that. And I don't mean you specifically, Jerry. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who have their their bones with modern and I've been among them at points, right. but it is the most popular magic format. And I, I get wanting to air the most popular format, but in this particular spot, I mean, this is the time for standard. People are into standard and they want to know what's happening. And it took us this long to get our first look at what a really big tournament being played looks like. Yeah, so 1339 was the number for Lil, and uh, 1212 was the number for Jersey. And maybe okay. it's just you need some time to get the players who were lapsed during Chain Whirler. Yeah, I, you know, I was at a, when I was up in the Northeast, I was visiting some friends at my old LGS and just talking to them about their business and how things have been going. They told me a lot of people just sold all their standard cards. They're like, standard's never going to be playable again. I want out of this and I want into modern. And tons and tons of people vacated the format as hard as they possibly can, selling staples that you know usually you'd anticipate carrying over into a new format. They were just like, nope, done with it. Don't want to play this anymore. And that's anecdotal, you know, a very small piece of experience. But there is a little bit of a standard hangover. I don't think it's justified at this point. I think we do have a great standard format, but uh, it takes time to shake off the effects of something like that. Yeah, for sure. And I, I don't know, like the results from these two GPs were fairly positive. We had two different decks winning each tournament. There were, I mean, there's basically at least a deck for every guild, and then there's mono red aggro. So mm -hmm. if if nothing else, we're we're in basically a six deck format, which is better than it has been in quite some time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also, you know, that's a broader way of looking at it, but I wouldn't sleep on the fact that there's so much customizability within those guilds as well. There's so many ways to build all of these decks and that's worth a lot as well. Right. Absolutely. So I, I'm sure we'll get into that a lot. So right. uh, GP Lil was won by Mono Red Aggro and I must say a very good looking Mono Red Aggro deck list. Uh, four, four copies of Experimental Frenzy. Very aggressive with eight one drops, eight two drops, four chain whirler, two rekindling phoenix, twelve burn spells. The sideboard has four copies of treasure map, and then basically the usual suspects for what we've seen out of red sideboards, like some fiery cannonades, lava coils, fight with fires, and bane fires. And unless you want to play more rekindling phoenixes or go as big as siege gang commander, 
or if you want to do like the the kind of like super deep things that people are doing on Magic Online, you you sideboard some some Star of Extinctions in your Mono Red Aggro deck. Yeah, we've seen it happening. I th- I think Busan found the sweet spot for this tournament. I think they floated exactly where they needed to on the spectrum of large to small. They're mostly small, getting a little bit bigger than the classic all-in red decks with like Flame of Keld, obviously, relying correctly on Experimental Frenzy, which I love. And then those two Rekindling Phoenixes main, which are kind of like the bigger spells, which we haven't seen in some past builds. I really like their inclusion here. And, you know, you continue to get bigger in post-board games with things like Treasure Map and Banefire. And they got rewarded for it. And I'm not really surprised. You know, we all said at some point Mono Red is going to take a tournament. This was it. And it, it was time, despite what seems like a pretty difficult matchup against the Boogeyman going into this tournament, which I would say was certainly Golgari. Uh, I think they found a nice little configuration here that gave them a completely reasonable matchup against that deck. I do too. Kind of surprised to not see more Rekindling Phoenixes in the 75. And there is a distinct weakness to Wild Growth Walker in the main deck. Like yeah. you, you normally see these red decks getting a little bit bigger, playing things like Lava Coil. Uh, but, you know, if you have a timely Wizard's Lightning or Lightning Strike, then maybe things will be okay. And let's not forget Experimental Frenzy, too, because if that goes off, it just totally negates Wild Growth. You could have the biggest Wild Growth Walker in the world. It becomes irrelevant at some point when you've played, you know, 20 spells off the top of your deck. Right. And I don't know. I mean, a lot of these red decks were like, okay, let's play Frenzy. Let's play Treasure Map. Let's play Dismissive Pyromancer. Anything that we can use to manipulate the top of our deck. Busan just has a low land count and a bunch of cheap spells. So un- unless mm-hmm. they hit a pocket of lands... Frenzy's still just going to be excellent. Yeah, and it's frustrating when that happens, but the damage you do to the rest of your deck, maybe by trying some of these flashier things, which I will openly admit have caught my eye, I've taken this approach to try and get Experimental Frenzy to work by doing things like Treasure Map and Pyromancer. And ultimately, all those decks felt a little lackluster. They were fine. They had potential, but they didn't feel like something I really wanted to commit to playing. Whereas here, you're still getting that same hyper-aggressive mono-red start, and just being like, okay, look, if there's three lands on the top of my deck, my experimental frenzy isn't going to be very good. What can I right. do about that? Yep. And I, I think that's completely a, a fine uh, decision to make. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. Uh, second place, we have Gabe Nassif, Papa Hat with Mono Blue Tempo. And incredible. Cur- yeah. Curious Obsession is excellent. I think this deck lost a little bit when it since it doesn't have Baral, so you can't play as many chart of courses as maybe you would normally want to. But now you're basically just focusing on using Dive Down to protect your obsessive creature or your Tempest Gin, and that is going to give you a lot of victories. And like two copies of Spell Pierce too. So a lot of really cheap interaction. Yeah, I think the the real big standout here is dive down for me i think dive down is actually one of the best spells in the format and this is probably the best dive down deck in the format and i have to give credit to nasif for recognizing that and going in as hard as possible on that theme it's something i experimented with throughout the week except i was trying to do it with like niv mizzet and stuff like that this is a much cleaner way of maximizing dive down and i really like the approach here it's super telling 
that I think this is the only copy of Mono Blue across both tournaments in like the top 32 and top 37. I don't yep. recall seeing another copy of Mono Blue. Uh, so certainly a lot of mastery here. Uh, an incredible player playing the deck is worth a lot as well. I'm, I'm not going to, de- to deny that. But if there's kind of one strategic point that I would lean on as, okay, this makes sense to me why this deck was able to find success, it would be Dive Down. Yeah, I agree with that. I think Dive Down is incredible. And with a lot of the decks being more mid-range oriented, I think this deck will generally have a a fairly reasonable matchup. Yeah, and there's a lot of that going on as we move through these two tournaments. It's that people are appropriately getting paid for the format beginning to slow down. They found a, a sweet spot to go under the arms race of decks preparing for mirrors and preparing for you know, recursive creatures and things like that. They're just like, I have one drops. What are you going to do about that? Like, do you really want to point your Vraska's Contempt at my one drop? Because I'll take that trade all day. Right. And rest of the top eight was a copy of Selesnia Tokens, a copy of uh, the Is It Arclight deck, two Golgaris, and two Jeskai Controls. Yeah, so Golgari still showing up here despite being blanked in New Jersey, which we're going to get to next. Uh, pretty incredible. I like the version of Arclight we saw here, but there's another version that existed in this tournament that probably bears mention for people who are you know, starting to explore this archetype. I, I, I really liked my list. I was very comfortable with it. I, I didn't make day two. I lost my one and in for day two, but ultimately was happy with my choice. I think I made a couple poor selections in, in sideboarding, but other than that was generally satisfied with the 75. But over in Europe, I believe it was team... Belgian magic that came up with a version that leaned on the Morari conjecture. Did you see this list? Yeah, the Virens. Yeah, what do you think about that? I thought that was a pretty unique approach because when you play these games, you you get to the point where you've like stabilized and you have almost no cards in hand and you say, okay, if I draw my radical idea or if I opt into radical idea or if I just draw a charter course, I probably win the game on the spot. And they're playing a way to kind of make sure that happens on a more reliable basis. And Niv-Mizzet, I've seen main a lot kind of in the same slot. I look at it and it has a problem where like you still need something else. Like just ripping the Niv-Mizzet isn't always going to be enough in a lot of spots, somewhat unbelievably, but you need that next spell to chain into it. And Mirari Conjecture is just like, here's everything you need. If you get to go to Saga or phase three of the Saga, you're probably going to win on the spot. Probably. I, I do agree that it's cool and that these decks for the most part need some big card advantage tool like you could do what Arnie was doing and just play the uh, the Enigma Drakes alongside the Crackling Drakes and maximize velocity and just be like hyper all in beatdown. Mm-hmm. But realistically, in the post board games, you're going to want to have some control elements. Like you just need them. Like people are going to have more removal, more ways to stop you from doing what you're doing. And having a bridge like the Mirari Conjecture, something that you're able to play in game one that also works with your sideboard plan, I think is huge. I don't necessarily think that the Mirari Conjecture is the best way to go about things. I do think that Niv-Mizzet Dive Down is basically what you want to be doing. But kudos to them. I I do think that Mirari Conjecture is one of the many ways that you could try and accomplish that feat. But I do think that Niv-Mizzet Dive Down is just better. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I had that after post-board games. I had two Nim Mizzets on my sideboard with a main deck dive down. So it's certainly a strategy I see a lot of value in, but I thought this approach was really innovative and I wanted to call it out uh, as an interesting way to approach the problem. One of the things you talked about, like this deck being able to transition to a control role and 
I got to obviously play a bunch of games with the deck. And I also watched a bunch of people play with the deck because a lot of our patrons, you know, knew we were talking about the deck. I talked about it all week over in the discord and and many of our patrons were playing it. And so I'd often pop over to watch their games and see what was going on. And one of the biggest kind of failings I saw was people treating it like an all in aggressive deck. And and there are builds that better emphasize that. Like if you look at the build from the top eight here in Lille with the Drakes and maximized velocities, yes, that is pretty much an all in aggressive deck with a little bit less flexibility. But for like bigger builds, like what we played, you block with your arc like Phoenix just as much at attacks in, in certain matchups. And I think people kind of miss the memo on that, that you just want to play to a long game state and then have this burst of kind of card selection, get a couple Phoenixes back and ride that to victory. My experience, like I played a, a little bit leading up to the Grand Prix just to be a little bit more informed and help you and show as I could. And I, I wish I would have played more because after the Grand Prix and seeing all these different deck lists, it gave me a lot of ideas for things to try and... I think I know what's up now, and it's it's basically just if you get to assemble Niv Mizzet dive down, you will almost certainly be able to untap with Niv Mizzet, and then once you untap with Niv Mizzet, the game is just over. Like you will find enough ways to draw cards and deposit phoenixes in your graveyard that you will kill them that turn. Like you you have this insane combo turn where you're going to deal them like twenty five damage or something. So that is that is what I want to be doing. And like you said, using Phoenix to block is perfectly acceptable, but you really do need to be able to build your deck differently in post-board games. Yes, I 100% agree with that. Absolutely. So I like where I'm at now, and I feel like our list for New Jersey was a little archaic, and I'm sorry. No, I mean, it's part of the learning process, right? And as the day went on, I was like, oh, I probably could have done this, should have done this, but... Uh, this is a brand new archetype and this was its breakout weekend. And, you know, we talked last week, there were people who didn't think this was a real deck going into this weekend. Yeah. And very obviously that is not the case. This is one of the top decks in standard as it should be. It's super powerful. And there's still a lot of questions as to the optimal build. Again, we talked about all the the diversity within archetypes. This just gets added to the list. There's so many ways to build these Drake decks. And I don't think there's any consensus right now. Yeah, there's a lot of cantrips, a lot of removal, a lot of different threats, and a lot of sideboard plans that you can possibly have. So you are somewhat limited in how you can construct your deck because you need a certain amount of tools of each if you're playing actual Arclight Phoenix. But right. the the details matter a ton. And being able to find the best sideboard plan, I think, is what is going to put this archetype over the top. Mostly agree. And I also think there's a lot of sacred cows that people need to slaughter. I mean, I talked a bunch with people and I'm like, well, I'm cutting my arc like phoenixes in this matchup. And some people are like, you never cut those. You can't possibly play without them. That seems crazy to me. There's so many good setups where you can play without phoenix. There, there needs to be a little bit more flexibility in how people are approaching matchups because the cards present you with those opportunities. There's so many things you can do in post-board games. And you mentioned a big one, just setting up uh, Niv-Mizzet dive down is is completely defensible in post-board games. It'll be interesting to see where this archetype settles. I, I'm, I'm really excited to see where we go with it. How many times in your life have you cast Star of Extinction against Golgari? Thus far, zero. That's oh, more a function. God. Yeah, I, look, I'm a believer. <laughs> That's more a function of what I've been doing than anything else. But yeah, I, I know this card messes them up big time. I absolutely need to have two in, in my 75 for post-board games against Golgari. It's so huge and it's so devastating and it just feels so good. Yeah, it's uh, it's a big game right now. And if you haven't picked them up already, you probably have already missed the boat. 
Uh, like a I very, did. Yeah, a, a very real and important card. I do think I have my Magic Online copies. I don't think I have any IRL copies, which I'm a little sad about. I got to go digging. Uh, God, this is from Rivals. So, yeah, I probably don't have this. Yeah, it didn't, didn't crack a lot of Rivals, unfortunately. So, I don't, Wait. I don't know that I have any floating around. No, this is actual Ixalan. Oh, so you think you might have it? Uh, maybe, maybe. We'll see. Yeah. Even then, I, I only played, I think, two Ixalan GP. So it seems unlikely I have one of these lying around. But I'll take the old the old trapes through the uh, value box and see if I can pull one out. Maybe we'll get lucky. Dude, that's, that's always one of the best things. You just find a $10 bill lying around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I always tell this story. So I, I've obviously moved around the country a lot. And most times I bring my 5,000 count boxes with me. And I have like 15, 20 of them. There's a lot of them. That's and a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a lot. And I've never like gotten rid of the the quote unquote bulk in my collection because every few years I sit down with it and pull out like $500 from it. And I'm like, okay, well, this is worth it keeping around. You know, I, I go and grab bowfly infestation or like, I don't know, some, some random common, like I, I'm like, oh, I have 30 burning inquiries and you get paid a couple bucks on that. But I remember going through my boxes all day one time and pulling out a goblin lore and being so excited about it. I, I, I went and told my wife, I'm like, I found a goblin lore. It's worth like $20. And she's like, you know, you spent like $500 shipping those all around the country. And the $20 from the goblin lore probably did not make up for that. No, but baby, it, it pays for itself, you know? like Right, right. That's the excuse I make. She's much smarter than I am. So she doesn't, oh, yeah. she doesn't buy that. But, yeah, she, uh, yeah, she's just like, uh-huh, sure, honey. Yeah, yeah. The trip through the value box is always fun though. Yeah, Star of Extinction, it is very good. Like, there is a reason that both Jeskai decks, the top eight, did have two in their 75. Mm -hmm. And if you have not cast it against Golgari, I highly recommend it because it destroys them. It's so good. Like, there is there has never really been a card that's just like almost, you know, one-sided super plague wind type of thing. It's just like kill all of your permanents. And then if you lose like a crackling drake, whatever. So it doesn't it. matter. Yeah, you'll get through that. What do you think about what's going on with Golgari in this here top eight? Because we're not going to get to talk about it when we move on to New Jersey. So I, I would like to get your opinion on it now. Uh, two wild growth walkers, main two in the board for both players. Uh, four planeswalkers in one of the decks, six in the other. Both have main deck carnage tyrants in some amounts. I, I really like the fact that Christopher Larson has two copies of cast down, which is... Yeah. Probably the best way to kill Takali Honor Guard. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a fair statement. Also can tag like random Crackling Drakes and whatnot. So I, Electromancer, I think, yeah. Yeah, so I think just having like a little bit more removal is more beneficial now. But I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a Golgari expert. I can't speak to like whether or not you should have Death Gorge Scavenger. Like that card has not really impressed me or... Uh, Chris Larson has two copies of Doom Whisperer in his sideboard. I mean, I don't know if that is actually going to help you as much as like building a Doom Whisperer Carnage Tyrant deck. Yeah. But I don't know. Um, I will say I played Golgari a few times, mostly beat it, lost to it once. And the most impactful card in the matchup was very surprising to me, although it's a card I'm high on. So I, I was kind of happy to lose to it because I was like, oh. This is much better than I thought in this spot, too. It was Karn, 
Karn was problematic from the Arclight side. It just gave them so much gas and let them find the removal spells they needed. Now, granted, the person I was playing against also did a nice job having cast down in their deck, having access to Veraska's Contempt. I believe there was even a uh, Necrotic Wound post-board. So th- they had the right cards to find with Karn, but its high loyalty count is challenging to pressure really effectively, and it feels often pretty bad to like make these kind of dopey attacks into a very high loyalty count where what I talked about, you want to be kind of trading back and forth and, you know, chump blocking Jade Light Rangers with your Arc Light Phoenixes, not committing them to very, very ineffective combat. So again, I remain high on Karn in the four drop Planeswalker slot. And the fact that it was relevant in a very difficult matchup for Golgari just got it some more points as far as I'm concerned. I hopped into some queues after these GPs were done, just kind of took in all the information, processed it, built a couple decks that I wanted to try out. And Necrotic Wound was cast against me a lot. And Mm -hmm. it's not surprising. I mean, the Arclight Phoenix decks are very good. They're very problematic for Golgari if they have the right cards. And Necrotic Wound kind of solves that, especially since a lot of the Izzet decks were boarding in uh, Rekindling Phoenix as well. And Mono Red's kind of seeing a resurgence and everything. So I think that card is just on the rise. Like people are going to be playing with that card more. Yeah, I agree with you. It's an important card uh, in the format. And the fact that the creature it most cares about now, well, I don't know if it most cares about it. There's two Phoenixes it really cares about. One only has two toughness, though. And getting to totally obliterate their four drop for just one mana is a really good feeling. So, Well, to be fair, Arcalite Phoenix isn't really a four drop. Yeah, but you've done the work (laughs) for it. Like, you've you've put in the effort. Sure. And then... For Golgari, the other thing I want to mention is like the the one constant between the two decks is that they both have three copies of Vivian Reed, which is huge. Yeah, Vivian's just great. Great Planeswalker yeah. that I slept on initially, uh, and it's so much more powerful. Uh, you and I have talked a bit about cards that play much more powerful than they read, and it's a recurring theme in Magic. And it's one of the reasons Magic's great, right? If you could just look at a card and accurately place its power level right on the spot... There wouldn't be much to do. Like this would be a very solved game and it would be silly. And I always like when a card plays so much better than it reads on its face. And Vivian Reed is exactly that. It's so much more powerful than I gave it credit for. Well, it's it's not even there existing just because of power level. It's it's context too. I mean, oh, this yeah. is this is one of the few cards that just cleanly answers Niv Mizzet and Lyra and Crackling Drake and all of these premier threats in the format. And you also have the disenchant aspect of it. You have Golgari mirror matches that want you to be able to grind and Vivian does that quite well. So, you know, she, she just checks a lot of boxes for this format. Absolutely. She's what the format is about. And that I think is very likely going to remain a constant. Yeah, I don't see anything straying too far. I mean, Flyers are big in virtually every single deck being played and Vivian's clean answer. And then if Flyers aren't big, there's an enchantment to answer. So like you said, all the boxes are checked for this card. So for Jeskai Control, uh, both versions contain some amount of Crackling Drake and four copies of Opt, which I, I think is just the new standard. And having two Star of Extinctions in the 75... Uh, one of the players, Florian Trot, has one main deck, which mm. I think is completely defensible. If you're playing against any sort of green deck, Star of Extinction is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And you get some card selection when you're dealing in opt and, you know, it 
you can kind of bear a dead card a little bit better if it happens to be dead. There's chemistry's insight. I mean, I know I'm looking at some pretty thin justifications. You're not playing it because you're happy to discard it, but you do have those outs, and it, it, it's nice when a deck has flexibility like that. Yeah, I definitely agree. So these these just guy decks are pretty similar, and uh, despite Ely winning with his Azores Gateway deck in New Jersey, I do think that Cracklin Drake opt Star of Extinction is the new normal. I was impressed by Azores Gateway, I have to say, and I think that it's kind of in a sweet spot where there's not a bunch of clean ways to. Like there's no abrade anymore, right? So it's not like it's ever getting splash damage. You have to actually think about getting rid of Azor's Gateway. And granted, Vivian Reed is still around. That's a nice way to do it. I got the full 20 fireball this weekend, though, from an Azor's Gateway on the Phoenix side. And I don't know how much that card really swings the matchup, because in most instances, I would say Phoenix is pretty favored in those games. And I got beat very soundly by some Azor's Gateways. And I'd want to play it more before I would say, oh, this is like a, a clean thing, a clean answer. But you can see how having a very proactive, like somewhat fast plan, because like I said, games with the Phoenix deck are not particularly fast in most instances, unless you're one of the all-in versions. You want to play a little bit longer. You want to set up Niv-Mizzet Dive Down. And with Azor's Gateway threatening to just kill you on the spot, you may not have time to do so. Yeah, I don't know. I I wanted to like Azor's Gateway, and it just really hasn't panned out for me. Just always seems so slow, and there's the always the chance of you flooding out, and then you still have this looting engine online, but it if you exile a second land, it just makes it that much more difficult to transform, right? So it's it's really weird to me. I don't know. I'm I haven't been like a, a huge fan of the card just because of how slow it is. The four copies feels a little crazy. I mean, I guess like you can always pitch the second one to the first, but they're, they're saying my deck needs Azor's Gateway to function. I always want it on turn two. Like that's what four copies signals to me, which is pretty incredible if you think about it. This was a card, again, floating around the bulk bin. I love how many irrelevant cards this set has thrust into the limelight. You know, we just talked about Star of Extinction. Now we're talking about Azor's Gateway. Really incredible stuff. Yeah, the Immortal Sun's another one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A, a key card in the format. And as we get to New Jersey, we're certainly going to talk about that card more. Well, uh, do we have any parting thoughts for Lil? Uh, I guess if I was wrapping up on this particular tournament, I would say this feels about a week behind to me. I, I think that there was a key missing piece of the puzzle over in Europe, and that was Takatli Honor Guard. And I don't think those decks were really... Uh, appropriately represented in this top 37, which for some reason we have the top 37 deck list. Don't don't ask questions, man. (laughs) (laughs) Just accept it. (laughs) Really not a lot of honor guard going on. Whereas when we crossed the pond over to New Jersey, uh, honor guard was a defining part of this format. And I think that's a more accurate representation as to where the format lies right now. Yeah, Honor Guard is in the main deck of three different decks in New Jersey. There are zero copies of Golgari in the top eight. Those are related. Yeah, absolutely. And three copies of Jeskai, one copy of the Arclight deck. So a pretty good spread. I kind of agree with you. I mean, I, I do think that Golgari, if it is going to make these top eights, does have to adopt things like cast down to not get just completely destroyed by honor guard. And I've even seen some honor guards coming out of the sideboard of Jeskai control. You know, like the the card is everywhere, at least should be at the moment. And the Golgari players need to be ready for it. 
it's it's not hard to see why, right? Like you just look at the Golgari deck and you're like, wow, this deck gets blown up by this card. It just yeah. doesn't do anything anymore. Yeah, none, none of their deck works after that. And I kind of like the idea of playing some sort of Boros deck that can mentor onto the Honor Guard because like 1-3 is actually pretty good stats for having a mentor target. That aspect's kind of interesting to me. Definitely something I worked on throughout the week, and I don't think I ever quite figured out the puzzle, probably because I was playing like Chamber Sentry like an idiot. But if I was playing real <laughs> cards, I may have gotten to the point where like I, I could make the Kotli Honor Guard do the right things. But this was something that was on my radar going into the week. All these uh, red-white aggressive decks, there's a lot of vulnerabilities they exploit. And this feels like some good old-fashioned standard magic, right? Like just finding the cards that line up well. The deck is like... I mean, I'm not talking about any deck in particular here, but just these general strategies, they're kind of mopey. Like just here's my one three for two mana. And then here's my angel, which, you know, we talked at length about how we're not believers in this. You can just jam a resplendent angel into Lyra as a realistic strategy. We we basically poo-pooed all over the Boros Angels deck that Brad played to second place. And granted, he made some very key adaptations, which, you know, fundamentally changed what's going on here. But there's still that same kind of mopiness, hope I curve out. And Brad acknowledged that when he talked about the deck afterwards. It, it was of an appropriate power level, but with very little decision making. He basically just drew his cards, played them out, and things proceeded from there. Well, when this Angel deck started showing up, and I, I guess it's worth noting that there are two different versions of Angels in this top eight. Mm -hmm. like, they both contain four copies of Takali Honor Guard, which wasn't present beforehand or entirely necessary. And that was one of our key complaints with the deck is that there just weren't enough two drops. And right. they're relying on things like Deafening Clarion to catch them back up and just hoping that they curve out. But like now the curves are actually more reasonable. And Andrew Tenjum actually had a reasonable version of like a bigger Boros deck too, where he just played four copies of Treasure Map. Right. Yeah. I, I thought his list was really interesting. He essentially just blanked all chupacabras he made them completely irrelevant even if he didn't have to cut honor guard i think every one of the creatures in his deck just shrugged it off it was rekindling phoenix uh knight of grace adanto vanguard and to honor guard i believe was his creature suite which is yeah, a pretty and, incredible approach to take and then you have history of banalia but it's like okay you know go ahead yeah it's fine right yeah. you're, you're still up on that exchange and up in mana right and and you're very willing to eat that let, let's start with Brad's deck, just because I've already mentioned it and, and we're talking through it. What was your takeaway? I mean, do you kind of agree with where Brad fell? It was just a bunch of cards that lined up really well, and he was able to reap the rewards just by kind of putting aside pride and saying, okay, I'm going to play these dumb creatures and, and let things play out. Uh, I like Adanto Vanguard. There aren't a lot of black decks that have removal, and black generally has the best ways to deal with this card, so like dead weight mm -hmm. and... Necrotic Wound, if you're doing that sort of thing, or Moment of Craving is the big one, I think. So Adano Vanguard is pretty incredible right now. Takatli Honor Guard we talked about. And then Brad also has four copies of Lava Coil, which is this card that has been kind of trending just up and up in the various Izzet decks, Boros, Monored even. Like, you know, you, you started with like two copies and then it was like, ah, oh, maybe a third copy. Now it's just like, no, you play four and, and that's just how it's going to be. Yep, it's incredible. It's an incredible removal spell. And again, you know, context is everything. The context of what it's doing in this format is so important. Uh, clean answer to Arc Like Phoenix, clean answer to other Drakes. Uh, four toughness is certainly a breaking point right now. 
Yeah, there's just so many good targets, like the, the two different Phoenixes and Wild Growth Walker, too. I think it's another big one where right, it's like, oh, right. you can't you can't just play like all shocks and lightning strikes because this thing gets a little too out of control. Yeah, spot on. Uh, so Resplendent Angel, I'm not super high on, but you do need an additional three drop. And maybe that's the best one, at least if, certainly if you're going to be base white is probably the case. And then Aurelia, Lyra, uh, like Lyra is just kind of like a main deck hate card, which I'm fine with. But also once you have Honor Guard, it's fairly close to untouchable against Golgari. I mean, they have right. uh, the Planeswalkers that deal with it. But aside from that, that's it. So I, I do like Brad's Immortal Sons in the sideboard. I think that those are a necessity. And I know that people were experimenting with that card main deck in these Boros decks, which I'm kind of on board with. Yeah. I mean, you have a lot of bodies to eat the buff. You appreciate card advantage here, mana reduction. You have a lot of expensive spells. It's checking all the boxes for me. It seems totally reasonable to play that card main deck. You know, it's funny. I, I don't think I appreciated it at the time, but I do think this format is so much healthier without something like a braid floating around where you can play these very unique answers. Now, granted, we're coming from a format where there was Heart of Kirin, and I shudder to think what would happen if we didn't have access to a braid in that format. Right. But for this format, I appreciate that there's not that clean answer floating around. Well, we, we're seeing the removal just kind of shift every week, and I think that it's going to yeah. continue to shift. Like next week, Necrotic Wound is going to be huge, right? Mm -hmm. And... Brad is playing Ixalan's Binding instead of Conclave Tribunal and Lava Coil instead of things like Justice Strike, which Justice Strike should just be Terminate, right? In in a lot of cases, but Lava Coil is more important. Ixalan's Binding is more important and potentially more impactful than playing Conclave Tribunal, even though you're likely going to get a discount on it. So being smart with what removal you include in your decks is going to pay huge dividends. And right. It's a huge part of the puzzle right now. Yeah, and you like you you should be punished for trying to do things like ravenous chupacabra, right? Like, oh, in theory, this should kill everything, but now we're seeing honor guards. We're seeing like a little bit more value creatures or creatures that come back, like Arclight Phoenix. You know, so just all the answers get taxed in one way or another, and that ebb and flow is just going to continually change throughout the format. Yeah, I agree with you. But uh, three copies of Boros Guildgate props. Yeah, not willing to take the chance on the mana appropriately slowing down and recognizing not a lot I want to do on turn one anyway. So let's just do it. Uh, I think that honor guard changes things a lot. I know that I mentioned that, but it is a big piece of why these sorts of decks are playable. I think I'm not sure what the actual best honor guard deck would be in my opinion. Maybe it is a thing that curves up to Lyra, but I, I still have some problems with Boros Angels as a whole, because it does have a lot of the problems that we talked about, where it's like, you're just tap out, play my biggest threat every turn and hope it's good enough. And I would imagine that that is not going to be good enough against a lot of decks. But mm -hmm. even even like the blue decks are just like cutting a lot of counter spells. So it's not like you're really getting punished by a lot of different things. So yeah, maybe it's good. They, they are counter light right now. That's a good observation. Well, let's go on to the, the other Tukatli Honor Guard deck or one of the other Tukatli Honor Guard decks. Well, what's, what is the best Honor Guard deck in your opinion? Uh, I, I want to lean towards Brad's deck right now. Uh, I, I that, just that's really a cop like, out. No, let, let me tell you why. <laughs> and then you can say whether it's a cop out or not. I think that his removal suite, I, I think Lava Coil is too important to ignore. If you're going to 
be the red version of the deck. I, I like his approach and his selection of removal spells. The green versions leave me feeling a little vulnerable to things like uh, Phoenixes. I think you can probably succeed against green white as Phoenix pretty easily. And I think the red white deck has a lot more potential play to it, a lot more outs. You know, Ixalan's binding in game one can be very problematic. Ixalan's binding on your crackling Drake. You really can't do anything about that. Lyra is very big and a very effective blocker. You have some life gain here. You have the four lava coils. So if I'm of the opinion that is it Phoenix continues to be part of the metagame, and I am of that opinion, then I have to kind of buy into the red white version as it stands right now. And I, I'm, I'd have to think a little bit more about what could sway me towards the green-white version. Um, maybe green-white is just better positioned against the Golgari decks. And if that ticks up, you can be green-white more effectively. Uh, but I think you're kind of casting a wider net that's shaped more like what the format actually is by playing the red-white deck. I guess also I believe that the green-white versions are probably a little bit better against control as well. Hmm, interesting. Green-white strikes me as weird because you're basically just playing Vivian Reed. Like mm-hmm. there's, there are some Shalai's, which, okay, sure. You know, that's, that's completely fine, but you could also just play that card and not have it have the pump ability and it would still be reasonable. Right. There are some Thorn Lieutenants, which don't necessarily need to be there because there's three Thorn Lieutenant, three Knight of Grace, three Adano Vanguards, and you have Honor Guards already. So you have a bunch of two drops. Yeah. I would and lose then, those Thorn Lieutenants and just max the Vanguards Knight of Grace probably. Adano Vanguard, certainly. Uh, Knight, Knight of Grace is kind of whatever to me. And then there's Flower Flourish to fix, but you're not going super wide, so I'm not very happy about Flourish or Shalai. Uh, Assure, Assemble, like, okay, I, I guess that's a card. I don't know. New Dive Down. Uh, expensive Dive Down. Yeah, two is a lot more than one. I haven't bought that card as a constructed playable card yet. Uh, me, I'm, me I'm not either. 100% convinced. And then there's... I, I do like Kellen's three Ajani's. Uh, I'm not sure how often you need to return an honor guard to the battlefield, but maybe in the future that will become more of a thing if the Golgari decks are playing more cast downs and the like, where yeah, if you're leaning super hard on honor guard, you need a way to protect it or bring it back, and I think Ajani does a good job of that, even though I don't necessarily like Ajani as a card. Yeah, a little extra uh, durability against control as well is probably a little bit of a beneficial point. So I, I think those are the points where you're getting extra percentages. I just don't think they're the points where you want the extra percentages right now. Yeah, I agree with that. And then, you know, sideboard has some carnage tyrants. Uh, I, at this point, I would hope that everyone is prepared for that card, at least as much as they could possibly be. Yeah, it seems like it. I, I They had success. I'm not saying carnage tyrant was rendered irrelevant, but, you know, you look at the decks that performed very well here and you would say that typically they are the decks that you think have weaknesses. You know, something like Is It Phoenix should have weaknesses. Jeskai Control could have weaknesses. It doesn't anymore, though. Things have adapted and, and people know how to answer these cards. Yeah, Carnage Siren is a much better threat against Control in game one. Mm-hmm. Because they're they're slightly lacking. You know, you'll see the occasional Star of Extinction, maybe... Settle the Wreckage or Cleansing Nova, but they are light on those answers. And then post-board, it's like, okay, well, I want, you know, two to six things that answer Carnage Tyrant. I don't, I've just done the Deafening Clarion expansion thing so many times now. It feels like it's always there when I need it. So I, I don't okay. know. I, I don't, I don't fear Carnage Tyrant the same way I used to when I'm playing something like Jeskai. That's fair. 
I mean, there's also Cracklin Drake to block, which has been more right. than good enough against me. Although there have definitely been spots where it's like, please don't have a cast down type of thing. Yeah, yeah, the blowout. And then the other Takali Honor Guard deck is this weird looking Boros deck. The numbers are strange, but I like some of what's going on here. I, I like that you're getting some card advantage. Bugler is a very good modern playable card that I am still shocked has not really found a standard home, but maybe this is it. And I think they sought to lean on the kind of card selection of Bugler in this instance and load it up with a bunch of one-ofs, which is interesting. Some interesting ones here, Siege Gang Commander, Bounty Agent, nice clean answer to Niv-Mizzet assuming you have already gotten over your summoning sickness phase, because otherwise it's not going to live. Right. But yeah, there's there's some neat stuff going on here. I don't know that I'm over the moon about this deck. It seems like if you decide you want to be a Takotli Honor Guard deck, then just play them, put four in your main deck. But then you have Militia Bugler and you have that awkward anti-synergy, which is something that I've built into my decks before too. And generally it's like, okay, if Takotli Honor Guard matters a lot, then I can go get it. But it's amplified here with things like Siege Gang Commander, Dire Fleet, Daredevil. So it's not as clean as it is in some of the other decks that I've built. Also weird to see Swift Blade Vindicator here. I don't know that I buy that card anymore. I think it's fine if you are trying to be more aggressive and have more integrity type things or more mentor things. But yeah, in in this sort of deck, it seems like something like Knight of Grace would just be a little bit better. Yeah, I could buy that. But there's there's like Legion Warboss to go along with Tajik, so you have some ways to pump it. Yeah, not a card I really like, Legion Warboss. Uh, and especially into this metagame, it's like, who who is that card good against? It's never going to do anything. It is always going to die immediately or just get brick-walled immediately. I think that card's time has come and gone. It's a sideboard option at best as like a change of pace, but uh, having it main deck concerns me right now. It just doesn't line up well with what's going on. Yeah, I mostly agree with that. It's it's weird that the things that I want to do with the white decks are involve Militia Bugler and or Tristani, and neither of those works particularly well with Honor Guard. So yeah. Honor Guard just curving up with the high impact cards like Lyra and Aurelia and stuff like that makes a lot of sense to me at the moment, even though it, it does make me sad, but... This, this Boros deck has four copies of Lava Coil, zero copies of History of Benalia, which is kind of weird. Yeah, I, I would put that under the weird column for sure. You know, the mana is appropriate to support it for the most part. 16 sources of white mana. Uh, just didn't want it. Wanted to be able to find things with Bugler. I, I'm sure the creature count was a very big consideration in that decision. Legion's Landing versus History of Benalia, though. I I don't know that this deck wants to lean towards Legion's Landing. I don't know. I, I obviously have not played games with it, so I could be very mistaken. And Legion's Landing is very key here. Uh, but I'm of the mind that if I have to make that sacrifice, I'm leaning towards the more powerful option there. Yeah, this, this deck is pretty wild. Yeah. And then other than Ely's Jeskai deck, we have a couple other Jeskai decks that are... Uh, kind of what we talked about in Lil. We have both of them with Crackling Drake. Only one has Opt. And yeah, the Opt versions typically have one or two fewer lands. One of them has two copies of Star of Extinction. This is, again, the Opt version. So pretty pretty big fan of Gonzalez's Jeskai list. 
Yeah, if I had to choose, I would lean in that direction. And we see Legion Warboss in the sideboard here doing exactly what I talked about, the old switcheroo. Kind of like that approach out of the sideboard, even if I don't like it in the main deck. But I think this checks all the boxes. Star of Extension. I, I do have a problem with three Teferi. I just always play four Teferi. I don't know how people get to these three one splits on Teferi and Rawl. Teferi is still the best card in standard, and there's not the best support around it. And that's the reason it's not dominating the format. It's just an important piece of it. But it is still the best card in standard, I, th- I think pretty clearly. I mostly think that. I do think that there are... It's more likely for a board state to get to a point where Teferi is not as much of a slam dunk as it was before. Like, it's harder to protect, right? Like, that is that is just true. Right. But do you think that speaks in favor of wanting Rawl instead? Like, I, I don't think that's a no. point in Rawl's favor. It's, it's no, the same thing. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, yeah. I agree with you. I don't understand these 3-1 splits. Uh, the two players in Lil also had 3 Teferi, 1 Rawl. I don't understand. Yeah, me neither. But that doesn't mean I'm right. I mean, it could just be something I'm overlooking and they've found a problem that Rawl more specifically addresses and I'm overlooking that. But you'd have to prove it to me before I believe it. That's where I'm falling on that. Right. And uh, Revitalize is another card that is showing up more and more in these Jeskai lists as a means to combat Banefire and also a cheap cantrip with Crackling Drake. And I'm, I'm fine with Revitalize. I don't think that Banefire is super huge on the list of concerns at the moment, but it's definitely something to think about. Man, does that feel like a 2002, 2003 control deck inclusion to me? Doesn't, doesn't that just feel like a different time when we're playing Revitalize? I mean, you think back to things like, uh, what, what's the cycling life game? Renewed Faith. Yeah, and, and cards like that. It, it smacks of an era of gone by magic. But you can see why it does make sense here. Crackling Drake benefits from getting larger. Uh, and you can play that kind of weirdo tempo-ish fairies game where you on seven mana play your Crackling Drake and just look to end the game in two to three turns, which which I like. I like having that option available to me. Yeah, Revitalize gives you more things to do with Teferi's untap. It fills your graveyard quicker for search for Escanta and Crackling Drake. Like, it kind of does make sense to me. I th- I think that the ne- necessity for including Opt and Revitalize speaks to the power that Cycling had in the previous format, mm, where point. Search for Escanta is a lot slower to transform these days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, unless you're doing like weird stuff to work really hard for it, which you know I, th- I think we kind of tried to do. This wasn't something you were into, but Cho was into Search for Escanta in our Arclight deck. And we played it in the sideboard and, and search did flip very easily and reliably in that deck because it's like turbo cantrips all over the place. Right. And it did a nice job of transitioning to those kind of control-ish games that we talked about playing where you're just trying to set up Niv. I think he may have been onto something there. I did like it better than the enchantment, the Fireminds enchantment, whose name is escaping me right now. Research. Fireminds Research. Thank you. Uh, I, I did like search better than that. So I could see search being part of the Phoenix builds going forward for sure. Yeah, the, the Arclight version that I've been playing recently had one dive down main, and then the sideboard had another dive down, two Nim Mizzet, two Star of Extinction, and two Search for Escanta. And Search is just like the perfect bridge for the bigger cards, because yep. if you're slowing down, playing more of a control game, Search gives you this engine, but it's also a ramp spell that ramps you into these bigger cards. So right. that sort of side blame, sideboard plan has been excellent for me. Yeah, and that's basically where Cho was at on it too. So props to him for figuring that one out. I I wouldn't be surprised to see that be part of the strategy going forward. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, if people start attacking your graveyard, it's kind of whatever because you can rebuild so quickly 
And that yeah. means that they're slowing their deck down and not doing the things that actually matter. So yeah. yeah. And crackling Drake just doesn't care. I don't like go ahead and attack my graveyard. It's, it doesn't affect crackling Drake one right. bit. Yeah. That's so, kind of funny. Yeah. And, and unintuitive too, by the way, I I'm pretty sure probably the first 10 or so games I played with this deck, I didn't realize that my crackling Drakes were still benefiting from cards being exiled. <laughs> Yeah, you normally think of it as, oh, this works with Jumpstart, cool. Right, right. Not they've removed my graveyard, so my creature is still large. Just something about it didn't quite grok with me, so. Yeah, no, that's legit. Other top eight deck is just old school Selesnya tokens with four Nullhide Ferox and two Immortal Suns in the sideboard. Like, deck, deck is fine. I think that there are a lot of fiery cannonades, so you definitely need a way to get around that if you are playing this sort of deck. But it's also possible that the amount of cannonades just kind of drops off after this weekend. Yeah, I, I don't know if I believe in this deck. Uh, it's something I worked on a bunch and just doesn't feel like it lines up very well to me right now. Yeah, um, I, agree, I agree with that. I don't think it lines up particularly well. I do think that there are cards like Tristani that are very powerful and underutilized, but... Like I mentioned with the Takali Honor Guard stuff, I think that's more of where you want to be with white decks. Yeah, mostly agree with you. Uh, I may return to this archetype at some point. I was trying really hard to make song work. Uh, it just doesn't work for me. I, I don't think the setup is there. I think you need to get value out of all your cards and you can't potentially top deck a miss in the late game. It's just too impactful, too uh, detrimental to have that kind of miss in your deck. So I might return to this at some point because I still do believe that a card like Chamber Sentry fits in nicely to a deck like this, and I'll probably try it again. Yep. And then one Arclight deck in each top eight. Both of them have Enigma Drake. I don't know if that necessarily speaks to anything. Well, I'll give my opinion on Enigma Drake real quick. So it was something I debated on adding to my sideboard. Basically, we had a sideboard slot, which was being occupied by two Rekindling Phoenix. And at some point, I spoke to someone over in the game podcast Discord. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name, who it was. But they had said they had been playing Enigma Drake in their sideboard and enjoying it in aggro matchups just as a way to both stall the ground with four toughness at an earlier point in the game and to just turn the corner really quickly, which is important when you're playing against aggressive decks. Things like green-white, you, you really benefit from getting in there. And ultimately, I didn't pull the trigger. I played Rekindling Phoenix instead, and it did a fine job in those same kind of slots with a little bit more removal mitigation, theoretically, except for the fact that I never made an egg throughout the entire tournament. It just didn't come up. And like, granted, where there's the threat of making an egg that disincentivizes removal spells for sure. But in a lot of instances, I had access to dive down in post-board games and just being able to set up like turn three Enigma Drake, or excuse me, turn four Enigma Drake with dive down protection was very relevant in a lot of spots. So I, I think if you're looking for another bird out of your sideboard, I would consider Enigma Drake before I would consider Rekindling Phoenix. As far as in the main deck, I think they're different decks. And I think Eduardo's approach to the archetype was different than what we did. And it has its merits. It's much more all in, kill you out of nowhere. And there's a place for that in this metagame as well. Um, and I, I think this version works too. It's not the one I'm most experienced in. So I won't give too much uh, input into it. But a lot of the same stuff going on, post-board game, setting up, Niv-Mizzet, dive down, I think is very good. I was quite pleased when I tried Tormenting Voice for a little while, even in my bigger build. Uh, I can see that 
eventually becoming the correct way to go over something like discovery. Uh, but it depends. It depends what you're trying to accomplish, especially in post-board games. What I have liked most about Tormenting Voice is that when you're doing things on your Goblin Electromancer turns, you often have these mountains that go unutilized. Right. And Spot having on. having as many blue sources as possible works for Electromancer with Discovery Chart and Radical Idea. But when you're trying to cast Crackling Drake, you also need to be playing mountains at some point. So I think you should split your red and blue cantrips. Not like right down the middle or whatever, but you absolutely need to be playing some amount of Tormenting Voices. Right. And that's something I only picked up on as the tournament went on. But I, I agree with that. It's it's a good pickup for the deck for sure. So how how did your tournament go overall? It sounds like you tried to make the most of the weekend. You were out, you were visiting friends. Uh, you had a birthday kind of like celebration sort of with your parents or... Yeah, I went out to a, a birthday dinner with them on uh, Sunday after I failed to make day two, which is kind of burying the lead there. I, I thought the deck was fine. I lost once to the mirror to uh, a mulligan to five and you know no lands. I, I think I had one land in play when he had his niv in play, so I wasn't going to pull that one out. And then I lost to Golgari that I mentioned earlier, where I thought my opponent was very well set up for the matchup. And it it just felt like my sideboard was like two or three cards off and and probably my main deck as well. I mean, the tormenting voice thing was something that I picked up on and didn't lean into. The rekindling Phoenix thing was something I picked up on and didn't lean into. So maybe with another few days of prep time, I might've gotten things sorted out. Uh, but ultimately I ended up losing a winning in for day two, not super dissatisfied with the deck performance was okay. You know, I, I certainly made mistakes along the way. But I just wish I got those last few slots figured out. That's what was really frustrating because this was the breakout week for Phoenix, like we predicted. And uh, it would have been nice to, you know, take advantage of that and, and pull off a good result. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think a lot of these decks are still a little archaic and need work. And we'll probably see a good version of Is It Something come out of the Pro Tour in a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of refinement. And, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of times when we go into the Pro Tour, we're like, okay, what new deck is going to show up and break it? I'm so excited to see what people come up with. And sure, that still exists. You know, there could still be something under the radar that no one is playing. But I'm as excited to see optimized builds, what people consider the optimized builds of all these existing archetypes, again, because of the flexibility. And uh, I want to know what version of Is It Phoenix is going to rise to the top? What version of Jeskai Control is going to matter? Is it Azor's Gateway? Is it something else entirely? Is it Crackling Drakes? There's just a ton of unanswered questions that, uh, you know, I I'm hyped for this Pro Tour. I wish it was earlier, but I'm still hyped for it. There's a lot to learn from it. And uh, I can't wait to see what gets, gets shaken out of this format. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I want to see what these optimized versions look like because we're in a five set standard where we just have a, a wealth of playable cards and there haven't been enough big tournaments for people to be able to be like, oh, okay, this is the correct way to build this deck. And this, mm -hmm. this it's clear, right? And this deck won the tournament and now I'm going to like latch onto that. And that just kind of like perpetuates within the metagame. Now everyone is just like, well, I like blue red, but I don't like this stuff. So I'm going to change 10 cards, you know, and yeah, and then the deck's the completely different, right? None of the decks look the same. So it is definitely yeah. going to be very interesting to me too. And I'm, I hope that I'm one of those folks that gets to refine the is it deck. Me too. I hope you get it figured out. I mean, do you think you could point to anything in the design of GRN that's really leading to 
this kind of diversity? It's, it's something I've puzzled over a lot. And I think the really simple answer is like, it's a multicolor set and multicolor sets are great because they allow you to play more powerful spells and they kind of give you lanes to stay in. And I also think the depth of the set is another thing I would point to. Just how many good tournament-worthy cards exist in this set uh, is kind of, I don't want to say unprecedented, but it feels like a really high number of tournament-worthy cards. I mean, is there a factor you think you could point to as to why we've had such a successful start to the standard format? Relatively flat power level in like across all metrics and mm. depth of playable cards it's really difficult to figure out what an optimal build of something is or if it even exists. Because who's to say that this Enigma Drake deck that is strong on its own is better than the more mid-rangey controlling is a decks that we're talking about, you know? It's just like they, they both have their pros and cons. They both do their things. Maybe it's a metagame decision uh, because the Enigma Drake deck is slightly better against Mono Red and the mid-range one is slightly worse or whatever, you know? So... Hmm. I, I think all of that just leads to there being a lot of churn just incidentally as the format ebbs and flows and different things become more important in, in the coming weeks. So, yeah, I, I think it is just we have options to do different things. Right. Right. And we're kind of on rails with the mana and that keeps us in line to some degree. But all of the guilds are pretty well represented. Yeah. And one more thing I would point to, too, I feel like I've beaten this point to death, so I'll, I'll just say it quickly. Planeswalkers being weaker matters yeah. a lot. Yeah. Like, it, it's it's having a dramatic, dramatic impact on the format and a very, very positive one. And I, I hope that's a big takeaway from what's going on here is that limiting the, the best thing you can do from just always being Planeswalkers. I mean, you look at these decks, this might be a historic low point for the amount of Planeswalkers you see across them. Uh, anytime in the last few years, for sure. There, there's just not that many walkers, and it's nice to see. It, it's a good shift. Yeah, and they're still showing up, too. It's not like they're completely like unplayable they're or anything. Right, right. Spot on. Uh, this week, I have GP Atlanta. and that, that is a modern tournament. And w- What I, you like? Okay, so I'm kind of excited because I haven't played modern in a while, but I feel like the metagame is such that I can't play a deck that I will enjoy playing. Okay. Is this based on last week's Star City results, maybe? Or uh, it's it's like two weeks ago where Dredge kind of crushed everything. Like I was I was pretty happy to play one of the versions of Arclight, but mm-hmm. I just I don't think that that's viable. There's gonna be a bunch of graveyard hate. It has a bad matchup against Dredge. The decks that rose up to beat Dredge, I also think are not particularly good matchups. So I think it's kind of out the window. I'm playing humans, my flex slot in like the Bugler, Thalia, Anafenza three drop slot. I'm going to play some Tajiks. Oh, so what has particularly drawn you to Tajik? I think having another haste threat is awesome. Mentor is not trivial and protecting your things uh, from non-combat damage is quite good right now with people playing Anger of the Gods in Valakut or Dredge having Conflagrate. And mainly it is just having a haste threat. I think just more Mantis Riders is very good against things like Tron and Control, allowing you to continually pressure them and everything. So I'm pretty excited about it, actually. Right. No, that's cool. I, I like that approach. I am interested to see what happens with Amulet. I want to see if people are going to start flocking to this deck. Uh, I myself have flocked to it in recent weeks. I bought it on Moto. I bought it in real life. I 
intend to start getting my reps in. I'm sure it will be appropriately hated out of the metagame before I ever get to play a tournament with it. <laughs> um, but I, I want to see what this deck can do uh, now that it's kind of got a little spotlight on it. I, I do think it's one of the best decks in modern, particularly for the metagame we're currently seeing. Uh, if you're trying to do like fair Jundish stuff or you're trying to do graveyard stuff, Amulet's there to beat you up and you're, you're going to get run over for sure. The limiting factor will always be Blood Moon. I don't know how good Blood Moon is in the broader format right now. I, my instinct is not very, but I kind of always feel that way about Blood Moon, and then it'll surprise me sometimes. So it'll be interesting to see where things shake out on that that end this weekend. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I do think Amulet is good and underrepresented, and it, it's weird. It's kind of like Dredge. You, you sign up to play a tournament with Amulet, and it's not like you're actually playing Magic. You're just playing this weird, different sort of game. And Puzzle. that. Yeah, it, that appeals to some people, and I, I mean, I think most people go to Magic tournaments to actually play Magic, but... Yes. Yeah. Well, a break is good every now and then. I mean, I know you've played some Dredge from time to time. I've also been a Dredger, so oh, yeah. I like all forms of Magic. I like subverting expectations and doing weird stuff sometimes, so, you know, pr props to Amulet players out there doing the weirdo stuff and keeping those fair decks in check and making sure the graveyard doesn't get out of control. Yeah, I, I definitely like that Amulet exists, and... I think I was one of the first people to write about the deck in like 2012 or something. Yeah, so, I always talk about that. I remember being in a, like a Facebook messenger group and us grinding out early like hive mind based versions of the Amulet Bloom deck for sure. Yep. So I, I like that it exists and I, I just think the weirdness and the difficulty of play and the fact that the deck doesn't really have a ton of overlap with other decks in the format. These are all contributing factors to it not being super popular and with it getting first and second in a tournament last weekend, maybe that'll change. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Well, we have a question this week. It's kind of a two-part question from two different individuals. And Wessel G asks, how do you fight the urge to feel smart in Magic? A lot of time a deck uh, or play looks shiny, but might objectively be worse over picking something objectively strong. And immediately after that, Ellison wrote, Brad Nelson tweeted about motivating himself to play a powerful deck without much play to it. Do you have to motivate yourself to make deck choices like that? Here's looking at you, Brian, and your recent Tron fascination. Yeah, so I, I guess I'll take first crack at this and I'll address the two questions separately. I think as far as like the Tron conundrum, I hold those decks to a higher burden of proof. And I, I need them to show me something special that makes me believe in their power level. I, I have to really believe that this is the most powerful thing I can possibly doing, be doing before I'll give up my agency in a tournament. And maybe that's bad. Maybe I should be more apt to pick up decks like this uh, when they start to gain momentum. But that's how I'm able to come to terms with giving up that aspect of agency. It's by doing the work on the deck decision side, because that's a form of agency as well. Figuring out this is just the most objectively powerful thing I can do, that's still part of magic. You're not, you know, not proving yourself as a player because you took that road. You still had to do the work to understand what the format was about and why this choice was so well positioned. So I don't think anyone should ever discount that step in preparation and how important it is and how much it relates to you being a good magic player. Going back to the first part of the question, how to fight the urge to feel smart in magic, that is something I'm much worse at. And it's something I've gotten better at over the years. But 
part of the problem is that I love the exploration aspect of magic. I like finding new things. I like finding new strategies. I like when uh, I can solve a problem that exists. And a lot of times that, you know, leads to me doing things that are too clever or too flashy or, or too shiny. I don't think I have the problem in my play style. I'm very comfortable making straightforward plays and not having fancy play syndrome, but definitely in deck construction, there's some of that going on. And the best way to check it usually is for me to just talk to you. I, I just ask you, you know, do you think this has merit? Is this a reasonable approach? Most times I'll listen. Sometimes I still won't listen. But having someone you trust check on your flightier ideas, I, I think is a really good way to go about it because we do have other motivations besides just finding the best thing. We want to feel clever. That's human nature. I don't think you should feel bad about that instinct, but you should work to eliminate it and you know not let your biases shape your decisions in the long run. Make sure you have some checks on what you're deciding. I think it's funny that I'm your check. It's like a uh, do as I say, not as I do type of thing <laughs> right, where right. I definitely need that check too. So I, I do think that it's good that it kind of goes both ways in a lot of instances, you know, right, it's like right. if, if, if we both thought exactly the same way, I think it would be probably pretty easy for us to go down some ridiculous rabbit hole, you know? Yeah. And we've probably done it before in fairness, but uh, uh, f- for the most part, I think we do get excited about, different things quite often. Right. And and that's good that we're able to use that against each other. Yeah. So a lot of this kind of comes down to goals. You know, what do you want? Do you, at the end of the day, do you want to feel smart? Do you want to feel like your rogue deck or your fancy play or fancy sideboarding was the result of you doing well? Or maybe if you go four and four or five and three at a Grand Prix, but you know, you got some people, then that's worth it to you. It is very difficult to have a world where you both win and all those things happen. And a lot of the time, the best thing to be doing, the thing that gives you the highest equity in a tournament is something that's kind of boring or at least boring to you. I don't know. It's weird. I, there are formats like limited and standard that I think are very engaging and are rewarding in their own sense where there's a lot of combat and you know how do i sideboard how do i mulligan what are these things that i kill like there's a lot of decisions to be made so you're just naturally going to have a lot of agency even if you're Mm. playing something like boros angels you know i am i'm sure brad did a lot of combat math over the course of the weekend right and maybe that's rewarding for some folks even if it looks like boring to brad so i don't know i i do think that Like you, I go down the rabbit hole of, oh, this would be a cool sideboard plan and I could see it working, but maybe it's not the best thing to be doing. And there's a lot of inherent danger in that. And I need to check myself or have someone like Cho or you who can put those checks on me, you know, but it's rough because for as many times as I failed, I think there have been enough times where the weird stuff has actually been right. Right. You know, so it's really easy to look back at that stuff and just be like, oh, but like, you know, maybe it could work this time too. Yeah, we definitely do a better job of remembering all the times we were right than all the times we were wrong. I like that you mentioned format too, because this problem of like doing the smart thing is so much more pronounced for me in modern. And I, I think it's probably because of that, like, 
lack of agency thing where you're like, okay, you know, a lot of these matchups, a lot of your matchups are matchup dependent. Uh, there's a lot of like play draw variants and you want to find ways to mitigate that. And I try and do it a lot through clever deck building. And certainly anyone who reads my articles on a week to week basis has certainly seen my attempts at clever deck building in modern. And sometimes it works. And especially when you're just trying to like surprise a tournament out of nowhere and and not necessarily redefine the metagame. I think you can do that successfully in modern. And I have done that successfully in modern, but you fail a lot too. And you just have to be willing to kind of take those lumps and accept them. And, you know, in, in some instances, maybe there's better times to take those chances, right? Like those aren't GP chances when you flew across the country. Those are like local 1K chances and and things like that. And And just choose your spots a little bit more effectively and still give yourself the chance to have those moments. Yeah, modern is largely a format about two ships passing in the night mm-hmm. it is incredibly rare for the axes of what you're trying to do and what your opponent are trying to do to line up to the point where you have one of those clean high interaction games or matches and i think you just have to come to terms with that and is there a lot of difference between playing tron or ad nauseum or valakut or whatever no like It's all kind of the same thing where you're just trying to do what you're doing, maybe stop your opponent from doing what they're doing a little bit, but you definitely don't see as much interaction in modern decks as you do in standard decks. Right. Certainly not. So yeah, maybe maybe modern's the format where uh, you should not necessarily be looking to grasp at those sorts of things. And I, I, I know that whenever I play a deck that's a Lightning Bolt deck or a Thoughtseize deck, and that's probably 80% of my modern tournaments, I am supremely frustrated whenever those cards are ineffectual against my opponent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I want to be interacting. I want to be picking and choosing like what my cards do and everything. But sometimes you're playing against Burn and your Thoughtseize sucks. You're playing against Valakut and your Bolt sucks. And it's just a feel bad, you know? Yeah, but that's modern. And, I, you know, it's a cost we pay for, like, the games we get to go off and do our thing. Sometimes our opponents get to go off and do their thing. And I think at this point, I've mostly come to terms with it and appreciate it for what it is. It's a different form of magic. Right, and it's possible that I'm clinging to it a little harder than I should be by playing humans or Mardu Pyromancer or whatever, where, you know, maybe there's just a, a better linear deck that I should be playing, but humans is like the best one that gives me that sense of agency. Just throw back to that decision real quick. Why did you choose humans over Bant Spirits? I think humans is better. Okay. I think the the cards are more impactful just in general. I think building large ground bodies is just more effective right now than building flyers. And I looked at kind of the winner's metagame on Goldfish and it was like, oh, like Thalia is good. Meddling Mage is good. Freebooter is pretty good. And uh, against a, a lot of the top decks and... The Spirit Stack has like the counterspell based disruption, which I think is just not very good right now. Okay. I, I don't have a strong opinion either way. I was interested in picking your brain. I only recently played my first Band Spirits tournament. I, th- I thought the deck was fine. You know, it kind of, I would lump it in with humans as fairly similar. Uh, but like you said, the disruption packages are really what differentiate the two. And if you feel like it's time for Meddling Mage Thalia, then it's probably not time for Spirits. There was a time where I thought that Banned Spirits was going to eclipse humans. And now looking at it where it's like Dredge, Tron, I think Banned Spirits wins out a little bit against Control, potentially. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then like Storm, Amulet, Titan, like I I want Meddling Mage against these decks. 
That's funny because I, one of the reasons I found myself drawn to Spirits was I thought that it would probably be better against Dredge given it's got Cleric in the main deck if you want, and you can also play Rest in Peace, whereas humans can't. Uh, and maybe that's just like my approach of taking a hammer to the problem as opposed to just finding like a very clean approach and doing meddling mage type stuff and Thalia type stuff, which is also effective against that strategy. Well, I'm going to play four Thalias because for whatever reason, people have gone crazy and they're only playing three. Mm -hmm. I'm going to play Tajik and Meddling Mage to help against Conflagrate. And then I'm going to have some Ravenous Traps in my sideboard. So I'm I'm kind of doing the same thing you're doing, you know, just in a different way. Yeah, well, that's fair. Well, uh, sign us out, I guess. You're, you don't have any throat problems, right? You can give us a, a nice, healthy that's game. This is This is going to take a lot out of me, but... I do anything for our fans, so give me give me one second. Let me get ready. That's game. Good luck.